and I went into it some day. All of the incentives are toward less medical care because the less care they give them, the more money they make. The less care that they give them, the more money they'll make. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to this week's episode of the 34th. This recording between President Nixon and top aide John Ehrlichman highlights a turning point in our healthcare system. The next day, Nixon signed the HMO Act of 1973 into law, which allowed for for-profit healthcare insurers. By the late 1990s, 80% of them were for-profit organizations, with a mere 68% or less of their premiums going into actual medical care. Last week, Maine held a direct referendum on whether to expand Medicaid. Although the referendum can be seen as a proxy battle between the Republican governor and Obama's ACA, there is something deeper afoot. Governor Paula Page has thwarted the state legislation five times previously by veto when they have attempted to expand the state's Medicaid program. So the decision was finally put to the people. Maine voters backed the referendum as it was passed with 59% voting yes. In fact, 567 of their 584 precincts cited in favor. This is interesting because I think we're finally starting to see a shift in voter perception and voters demanding real change in our for-profit health care system. This might be due to the fact that in 2017, the cost of health care remains the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. And it's also pretty appalling to witness the increase in the life expectancy gap between the rich and the poor. At present, even with the ACA, 28 million Americans remain uninsured. The recent attempts by Trump and the GOP will only increase this number if they are successful. And we also have folks with pre-existing conditions, such as asthma, that are going to see sharp increases in their premiums. So if the clear moral argument doesn't compel you, perhaps the financial one will. In the United States, currently over 31% of every healthcare dollar spent goes into overhead, CEO salary, profits, and the like. In contrast, the Medicare program operates with just 3% overhead. This is clearly far more efficient. So a Medicare for All system would cut our bureaucratic burden substantially, and it would free up more money to pay for actual health care. Yes, there will be a tax paid, but it will be far less than the current costs of premiums, co-pays, and the like. I would further like to discuss the myth that under a national health insurance program, the government will make medical decisions. This is simply not true. They don't do it now with Medicare, and they certainly wouldn't do it under an expanded Medicare for All system. Those decisions are left to the doctor and the patient, as it should be. Indeed, we could argue that under our current system, there is a form of actual quote-unquote death squads that do exist. Insurance company actuaries, who mathematically model whether a procedure is economically viable or in many cases profitable, decide whether you receive your needed treatment. In other words, there are many instances where it's more likely that you will be denied a claim under a private insurer than you would be denied care under Medicare for All. So if this is better for the country, why is it that we have a profiteering problem in our healthcare system? Well, it should be clear at this point that we have a money and politics problem. We face a bot Congress that decides to do the bidding of their donor class instead of the bidding of their constituents. As such, I will implore my fellow Americans to stop listening to the healthcare industry propaganda and start pushing your congressmen for the real change that we need. Our lives depend on it. Today we're going to be discussing Medicare for All with Dr. Ron Birnbaum, who was a veteran and a recent candidate in the District 51 special election. He is a doctor that has been a progressive fighter for Medicare for All for many years, and I first came across Dr. Birnbaum when I got a flyer in my mailbox that had Medicare for All spread across it loudly and proudly. I knew in that moment that this was a candidate that I wanted to support. So tell us, Dr. Birnbaum, uh, give me a little bit about your background and why you got into the single-payer issue to begin with. Yeah, sure. No, th- and thank you for uh, having me for this discussion. It's a, it's a great opportunity for me. Um, so, yeah, I'm a physician and uh, have – my specialty is dermatology, but I have had kind of – I've had 
a couple phases of my career. So I was a general doctor in the Navy, did primary care in uh, very underserved settings, and then and then after training as a specialist in dermatology, like continued in Los Angeles County to work in this very underserved setting. So I, I, I I've had a front row seat on the sort of inequities of our system and the inefficiencies in our system. And it turns out that those two things are very closely related. And in some ways, that's what Medicare for All is trying to do. It's trying to sort of harvest the inefficiencies in our system to try to solve some of the problems with inequities. Uh, I've had kind of an interesting arc in my life as far as it goes. So I was first exposed to single payer when I was a medical student at UCSF. And I, for now, I'm going to use, I'll just use the words single payer and Medicare for all sort of interchangeably. I guess we can talk about that because the words in this, some of these discussions and debates matter. But um, so I, I was a medical student in San Francisco in the 90s. And in 1994, uh, there was a, a ballot proposition, which was issue 186 which was to do a single-payer program in the state of California. And so I was a uh, second-year medical student when I was first exposed to that and worked, actually, I collected signatures outside of the uh, Safeway on Market Street in San Francisco to help put that on the ballot, and that was defeated. Um, But it's always still been, for me, the best model for how to do healthcare. And I think what's interesting is that there's some people who are, I guess what you'd call them, 100% their whole life true believers in that. And I've always thought it was the right thing to do, but I haven't always thought it was the right time to do it. So in 2008, for example, uh, in deciding who I was supporting in the Democratic primary, there was a single-payer candidate. That was Dennis Kucinich, but I didn't mm-hmm. support him. I supported Barack Obama, who was um, part of the, uh, you know, was advancing what eventually became the Affordable Care Act. Um, let me say that my, my interest in this issue grew substantially when I after the, or sort of returned to it after the November election, when I could see that the progress, and there, was, there has been progress from the Affordable Care Act, was under threat by a Republican Congress and a Republican president dead set on repealing them. But at the same time, it struck me that it's time for sort of like California to stand up and sort of model this for the nation, but also take care of its own folks. So and, and that's kind of a broad arc of my uh, sort of career interest in that, in this issue. You brought up a couple of things that I want to kind of go deeper into. Mm-hmm. Um, the first question I have in this area is where, in what area do you think the ACA is failing? Because I do think we have some issues with it which is why we're seeing more people jump on board the Medicare for all bandwagon. That's the first part. And then the second part is the amount of Republicans that are now supporting Medicare for all. And I don't mean politicians. I mean, voters. I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of data coming out where you see Republican voters saying, we agree that this might be the way to go. And I think that's grown exponentially in the last uh, couple of years. It's truly like a glass half uh, full, but definitely half empty. It's failing a lot of people. So uh, let's focus on California. You have 3 million people who are just uninsured. And, and some of those folks, are a, a good number of them are undocumented uh, immigrants. So if you, maybe somewhere around half. So if you go back, to the passage of the ACA, there was only one thing that Republicans and Democrats agreed upon, and that was that they didn't want to have anything to do with providing health care for the undocumented. So that is a group of people who are significantly left out. And then there's a whole set of people who, either because they can't afford it or they're doing the calculation that it's better to take the, the penalty uh, on the mandate than paying for not very good insurance. Those are like, that's like another big chunk of the, of the uninsured. Then you have a whole group of people that are the underinsured who have something that's called insurance 
but that doesn't always and often doesn't get them health care that they need. And that, you could even divide that into a couple, uh, so groups of people. The one is if you look at the biggest sort of advance in coverage in California from the ACA, it was the uh, expansion of Medi-Cal, which is the Medicaid program in California. But unfortunately, Medi-Cal, while it helps some people in some ways, is often insurance without access. Pays very poorly, the result of which is that there are very few doctors, relatively speaking, maybe only half will take it. And then that, then among specialists, that's even fewer. A, a number of years ago, I did a little study of kind of looking at, at uh, in Los Angeles County, at dermatologists who take Medi-Cal, and I found five. And, you know, you could find five dermatologists, like, on one floor of uh, some buildings in Beverly Hills. So it, it, it's sort of, like, next to nothing. So essentially, in my own specialty, for example, me, uh, Medi-Cal is often represents insurance without access. People can't actually get that, that help. And sometimes that's, life, you know, life-saving help, like a, cutting out a skin cancer or something. I'll also point out that the um, recently the Mexican... Uh, American Legal Defense and Education Fund, also called MALDEF, has sued Medi-Cal in California, essentially saying that it's a racist program, which is to say that it, as that population has grown, it's grown a uh, large part um, in the Latino population in the state, and in that time, the reimbursements have continued to drop, resulting in a large group of people, many of them people of color, who who get this thing that doesn't actually get them health care in many instances. So, you know, that is a set of people who are left out. But then you have all these other people from all kinds of walks of life who face the incredible expenses of our system. And, you know, it, so our system currently is a you know massive producer of bankruptcy, like medical bankruptcy, which is the biggest source of, of bankruptcy. And, and that's often in people with insurance and not just the uninsured. So, you know, these are all kind of the, the problems that we face. I think the, the problem within the problem is we still have a lot of profiteering going yeah. on inside the system, even with the ACA. I think that they tried to cap some of that off by saying 80% of the premium dollars had to go into providing actual medical care, but then you had the healthcare insurance lobbyists turning around saying, well, we want to include broker fees in that 80%. Um, the other part of the question had to do with Republican constituents or Republican voters that actually support this idea now of Medicare for All, whereas traditionally they've been the ones that have said, oh, it's socialism, ew, it's evil, it's bad, it's wrong. I, I'm seeing a big change in that um, part of our population. Are, are you seeing that as well? Yes, it's been certainly like a growing number of people. And actually, I'll mention that uh, when I was doing some fundraising for my own political campaign, I called a guy who was, he was like, as far as I could remember, the most conservative guy in my medical school class. And before I even got into why I was calling him, he mentioned to me that he'd come to the conclusion that we should have done Medicare for all in the 60s. Why would people who are fairly conservative or Republicans before this? It, it, our, our current system is so inefficient. And when you sort of dig down and you started to hit on this, Tina, involves a huge amount of kind of middleman extraction of of this sort of like a huge part of the pie um, to the insurance companies and also to the pharmaceutical companies. And that sometimes garners, especially given how much of what we do is sort of government-driven already, that starts to look like what people on the right will call crony capitalism because, in fact, the you know pharma and the insurance companies were very involved in the uh, crafting of the ACA. I mean, that was kind of part of the grand bargain. And so I'll, I'll try to kind of trace that out, which is, you know, right now, yes, the, the ACA tried to limit the overhead um, to something like 15%, um, but it turns out that there's other elements that are sort of really make that number higher. Um, that I guess we'd say aren't really covered by the law. And so that, in fact, we have a system where 
depending on how you count it, 25 to 30% goes to things that just don't provide health care for people. But if you look at Medicare itself, that number is something like 3 to 5%. So that's an interesting thing in and of itself because it goes against the dogma that, you know, when government does something, it must be less efficient. Um, in this case, it's just not true. And then from the standpoint even of, say, a, a Republican doctor uh, or a conservative physician, they can see that sort of like the multiplicity of all these insurance companies and having to have all this whole billing apparatus in your office and that kind of thing, that it's just terribly inefficient and costly. So anyhow, the idea is if we could recover all uh, some significant chunk of the, that wasted overhead, you know, even, even if it's not all of it, therein lies resources that would cover every, every human being. One of the myths about Medicare for all is that it's something we can't afford that it's sort of an expensive way to do healthcare. That's completely untrue. It's the cheap way to do healthcare. Not only is that just me saying that, but it's sort of empirically true in the other countries that do it already, and it's empirically true in the single-payer program we have for our senior citizens, which is Medicare. I wanted to ask you what your perception was on the recent California bill that we had that was tabled uh, by we were in a we're in a state that has a super majority of Democrats. So I really find this to be puzzling and inexcusable that in a state where you have a super majority of Democrats, how this could be. What are your thoughts on why that happened and what we can do to maybe um, get that bill back on track? Yeah. Now that is that is the twenty thousand dollar question. So. Um, Absolutely. So, it, so the bill you're talking about is SB 562, or also called the Healthy California Act, and it was introduced into the last session of the legislature by two state senators, Atkins and Lara, at the behest um, of a, a coalition of many organizations called the Healthy California Campaign. The leaders in that effort was the, the California Nurses Association who, who led this effort for a while. That team um, wrote a bill that is it's about 40 pages long, and it describes a system that is, uh, is as you said, it's like a Medicare for all or single-payer system for the state of California. I would say somewhat similar to the Canadian system if you're looking for comparators. The bill essentially describes the system. It doesn't specify sort of every how every, you know, syringe is going to be stacked in every, you know, everywhere in the state. It, it essentially, it, what it does in part is explain how a lot of kind of nitty-gritty decisions will be decided, but broadly spells out kind of who will be covered, which is every human being, and, and what range of services they'll have, which is by any measure kind of a, a very comprehensive set of services. And so this bill, um, it passed the Senate but very significantly, it didn't have its proposed funding mechanism attached to it when it passed the state Senate. And that's because, according to the laws in our state, you need two-thirds votes to pass something that would have some tax increases, and we'll get to what that's about. And so they didn't have quite that number of votes. They just made a decision, like Senator DeLeon, the president of the Senate, to pass it to essentially keep it going. It found its way then to the assembly and the uh, Speaker of the Assembly, uh, Speaker Rendon, tabled it in, into, a, uh, into a committee there. And that's where it's stuck right now. It sort of turned into a two-year bill, but it's stuck right now. So the question then is like, well, why did he do that? And, you know, he is sort of by reputation a progressive Democrat. So why would a progressive Democrat in a, in a state like California that has these problems that I talked about stop a single-payer bill? So now you're getting into kind of a um, sort of speculative 
um, area, and there's lots of different opinions about him. I can lay out a few of them. You know, the first thing is he said that the bill was, quote, woefully inadequate. And I think in part what he was saying is that it, it didn't have a lot of details. Well, I think the defense of that was that it, it, it was meant to be not a framework bill, but in, in other words, it was meant to provide mechanisms for determining the details in more in its execution. Anyhow, that was one of the things that he, that he said. So then, now there are people who think, well, the reason he tabled it was not that it was a bad piece of legislation, but that he, in fact, doesn't want it. And so then the question was, like, well, why, why would he not want it? And then people who are, take the follow the money approach, and I do often take that approach, note, have noted that he's taken a lot of campaign contributions from industries that wouldn't want this to happen. So pharmaceutical companies wouldn't want it to happen because they don't want the state to negotiate drug prices with them. And insurance companies don't want it to happen because it, it essentially ends most of their activity in the state. Uh, and so they don't, naturally don't like that. But there's, there's more because there are other organizations with a sort of kind of progressive uh, bona fides that joined him or sort of patted him on the back for stopping it. And so one of them, um, for example, was SEIU California. So this is, you know, the, a big, a very important, obviously, labor uh, union or umbrella of labor unions. They cited certain problems uh, with the bill, but said that they're still for single payer and want to work on it. So one of the interesting questions that I think is sort of hard to um, wrestle with, in fact, for progressives, is that I think that there is a split within the labor movement writ large about whether Medicare for all is a good thing. And the split, I would say, goes something like this. So you have a kind of some who just say, you know, labor has been part of looking out for the well-being of people for a very long time. They're, they're sort of, have always been kind of leaders in progressive coalitions, and they want everybody to have health care. And then, but then there is at least an idea out there that one of the things that labor unions do is get their workers good health care. If you take that off the table by giving everybody good health care, you then take away one of the things that labor unions offer their workers. And labor itself is feeling incredibly beleaguered now um, because they are, in fact, under assault by the right wing in this country. There is likely to be a Supreme Court case shortly that uh, will end kind of agency fees uh, issue that will certainly harm uh, unions. Right-to-work laws are on the march uh, and are in place in a majority Unions, I think, feel very strongly that they, they would be, pers- even if society benefited from this, that they would be personal, their, their, their membership would be harmed, or, or their, their, the strength of their union, and therefore the, the strength of their ability to look out for the well-being of their members. And like, these are real problems. I mean, this, this, this disagreement is, is, is a real problem. I think also, if you look at a strong organization like SEIU California and one that is very involved in politics in the state, if we reorganize our system so that every human being has health insurance that they could take anywhere, might, might there may be patients, Californians, who take their health care dollars to a place that isn't a union place. So SEIU California, for mm-hmm. example, represents a lot of public sector um, health care workers. And it's very possible that if you, if you give a lot of people really good health insurance, well, they may decide not to go to the county hospitals that, in which SEIU has a lot of you know, members. This is just kind of an example of there may be multiple forces at play. Mm-hmm. And you'll right. find people. Right, so I, that was a long answer to the question, but no, it, it's a great it, answer. It's still the job of the legislature to legislate. In other words, if there's problems with a bill, 
that, but that's necessary. And, and I think this is. It, it's incumbent upon the leadership to fix the bill or fix the problems or address the problems and even potentially address the needs of those persons who might be adversely affected by the bill. And if you're going to do have a single payer as opposed to multiple payers, there's going to be a lot fewer people who have jobs in billing. That's part of the efficiencies of the system. And so we need to find those folks new jobs. And, and, and you can't ignore the needs of the people who are, you know, most adversely affected by a legislative change. I think that's really important, um, but that we also avoid what I call false dichotomy politics, which is where you say, you know, we shouldn't do this thing that's, like, really important. Like, for example, we shouldn't ban fracking because there are workers in the oil industry, which is true. We should ban fracking. We should move towards a a uh, sustainable energy economy, and we should look to reinvest in the training and good work of those workers. You know, this is a political fight. And so I think that, you know, one of my goals in running for the assembly, and, and let me back up a second, which is, you know, there's this thing, there's this thing called the, um, there's, the, there's people really angry, obviously, that, that he stopped the bill some of whom have formed an organization to try to recall him. And I don't know how successful they'll be, but that's, you know, that's pretty you know, substantial political pressure. And, and it's okay for people to be mad and be activists and say, this is really bad. I mean, we're talking about you know, human beings' lives. It, it, as long as we, every day we continue in our system, we lose human beings to a terrible system and all kinds of suffering that's short of death. I also think that if... Well, there's another explanation about the speaker, too, right, which is that he's worried that uh, his supermajority is in danger because that Democrats who are in more sort of swing districts will have a hard time voting for this, and he doesn't want them to walk the plank. Do you actually Mm -hmm. buy into that? Because what's the point of having a supermajority if you aren't going to use it to affect change? That's the that's the big problem I have with that argument. Um, I do agree, though. Let me mention this. I do agree with you on the quid pro quo with the labor unions. I think as Democrats, we tend to be a little bit naive about um, quid pro quo only coming from corporations. It doesn't. It can come from a nonprofit as well as a labor union. There's no two ways about it. So you're, I, I think you're spot on on that. But, 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 but do you not think that, that he sort of has an obligation to use his supermajority instead of being fearful of losing it to really... Uh, push progressive change? Not, not only do I agree with that, but I would say if, if, if Democrats solve this problem for the state of California, they will ensure supermajorities for a generation. In other words, one of my goals in, in running for the assembly was I didn't want, I didn't want to like, ruin Speaker Rendon's life. I wanted to make him famous for doing good things. Um, for 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 leading in this way w- that we need to lead. So yes, it it it, it would take it 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 takes courage. And your point, which is like, what is the purpose of uh, of a supermajority if not to do good things? Then that are needed is. I mean, I, I sometimes said it's like it's not meant to be a self licking ice cream cone, like just there to sustain itself. It is, it's not a jobs program for politicians. It's there to do the work of the people of this state, and this is the work of the people of, of this state. Uh, my sense, and I also one other point about that, the, the labor stuff, which is I don't think there's unanimity in, in labor on this point. In other words, I think that there's people who view this very differently. Uh, that there's, there's, it's, it's really an interesting question for political scientists, too, to look at. But I would say, for example, there are plenty of countries that have much strong, you know, have, you know, universal health care and the labor movements are much stronger, you know, that it's not as sort of inherently damaging to labor. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that what there is is a kind of, it's a kind of conservatism that's based on fear. It's the fear of losing these supermajorities, the fear of, uh, in part, of, labor or in part, and, and, you know, at times you will have uh, labor 
have common interests with the businesses and organizations that employ them, right? I mean, you know, in other words, if you look at the fracking example, I think that's simple, which is like the oil companies and potentially some workers who work in, in the fossil fuel industries have what seems to be like a common interest, and if you put them together, they're a very potent political force. You know, when, you're get, when you're hearing it as a politician from business and labor, it's tough to do something else. So, but I think that you know, that's why we just have to make these arguments and, and say, no, we'll be in a better place at the end of this, and everybody will be better off, including Excellent. businesses, including unions, and including you, Speaker Rendell. You will be famous <laughs> for the guy who solved the health care problem in this state and then provided a model for the rest of the country. Indeed. Uh, yeah. I think that's the perfect uh, response. I, I agree with you on that. Um, so last week, did you follow this main referendum on um, expanding yeah. the – you did. So interestingly, mm-hmm. that, that passed by um, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Maine is one of those states where you have a mix of representation. It's not entirely blue. It's not entirely red. Yeah. But I think in order for this referendum to have passed at the level it did, you must have had some um, Republican constituents supporting it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, you know, one of the things is that if, if you look at any state that didn't expand their Medicaid, so, you know, after the ACA was passed, the Supreme Court basically said a state can decide not to expand its Medicaid program if it wants. But the, actually, the offer from the ACA was extremely generous. In other words, the federal government was paying for almost all, at first all and almost all, I think it's still 90% of the Medicaid expansions. So the, in the places that didn't do it, it was like just kind of anti-Obama like, cut off our nose to spite our face politics. Like, even though it would actually be really good for the people in our state, and everybody knows it, it's just like the thought of cooperating with that guy, you know, it just, like, is a nevma to some people in, in, in the right and in the Republican Party. And so they really did this thing that was just against the interests of their of their voters. And what's interesting in Maine, and it's a really interesting example, where, just, where the people just said, you know what, if you ask us directly, we want this. This then goes to the point, which is that you have to look at the ACA, and this is sometimes a problem for folks on the very progressive side of the left, is that they'll, they'll say, like, well, the ACA was like a huge sellout, and it hasn't done anything. And that's like completely not true. It has been a major step forward, and I think we're able to have the discussions that we're having now about Medicare for All, in part because of the progress of the ACA, in part because of Bernie Sanders' leadership in the presidential election. The folks in Maine were just like, we just don't get why our governor is not just simply taking advantage of a good deal for the people in this state who need this. And I think that's what that's about. And I agree with you 100%. But I thought it was interesting to see see that work itself through. I mean, he had vetoed the legislation the state had tried to put through, what, five times? So, yeah, that was, that was a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, Speaking of yeah. Bernie Sanders, my guy Bernie, got the federal bill now that he's got going up for Medicare for All. What is your opinion on that bill? Well, and, and, and there's like two federal bills, right, which is, you know, John Conyers every year has submitted his uh, uh, well, thank you for thank you for mentioning that. Senator Sanders is introducing you know for and interesting Kamala Harris, our uh, you know our junior senator has endorsed that bill. Uh, senator De Leon, the state senator De Leon, who's running in a primary challenge to uh, to Diane Feinstein, who's not for single payer, has signaled that he would be for that for the Senator Sanders bill. So I I think it's the right thing at the national level. I think it's the right thing at the state level. I believe that where we are politically in the country is that this is a tough sell nationwide right now, but that California is in a different place and is feeling very restive and like we have to look out for ourselves and even kind of stand up and say, no, we're going to do some things our own way. So I sort of think, politically speaking, the timing is best right now for California 
but I don't think there's anything wrong with a long game. And then ultimately you could ask the question, is it better for each state to do its own thing or to have a federal program? And it should be mentioned that Canada achieved single-payer one province at a time. It began with Saskatchewan, and it, 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 the program continues to be administered by the provinces there. And, and the deal is a little bit different in the different provinces. So, you know, I think that that's you know, like always a question, which is, you know, is, is some stuff better run sort of closer to home or nationwide? And, you know, could it be that what you establish nationwide is a sort of some kind of a general expectation, but then it's done at the state level? You know, I, I, I think those are sort of interesting kind of fine point political questions, but I think that you know, it, what we progressives want is progress, and that includes a short game and a long game. And what I see right now is that California has an opportunity, a vital opportunity in its short game to lead the country on this, and that in its own way, pushing on the national level, it's all part of the same effort. So I don't see them as sort of mutually exclusive. I don't see them as sort of in competition with each other. I certainly don't think, oh, let's only do this at the national level is an argument not to do it in California. I think, um, I think it's more of an inside-outside strategy. So, yeah. And I also yeah. think each time we put forth some sort of bill like this and there's a discussion on it, it educates the population even more on the problem. I think a lot of the times the health insurance industry has been very successful in this messaging. They have put forth um, a consistent message saying that socialism is bad, et cetera, and a lot of uh, voters on on both sides of the aisle have bought into this idea. So I think we have worked very hard to change that perception. So I think that's a good thing. You mentioned um, that Leon, De Leon was running against Feinstein and that he does endorse a Medi-Cal for all in his platform, but he's not the only candidate we have. We've got Allison, is it Allison Hartson that's running on the Justice mm -hmm. Democrats? Yeah, and then mm -hmm. we have Hildebrand, so David Hildebrand. So we have three candidates here that are running against Dianne Feinstein. All of them are saying they support Medicare for All, which I think is fantastic. I don't know that you have a well-developed opinion on any of them at this point, but if you do, would you like to share that with us? <laughs> so I'll, I'll say this. It's a, it's a good question. I, you know, I am a delegate to the state Democratic Party, so I will, as, when we look at an endorsement process, for this, I'll be making a vote. Do not have my answer straight yet. I think it is reasonable to offer Diane Fassine a primary challenge, and that this issue is a good reason why that she has become a little bit out of step with with the state. Now, you you will have people who will say they'll they'll just react to this and say, "Oh my God, we have all these fights against Republicans, and should we have these internecine fights on the left?" I think it's actually healthy, and I think the fact that Senator DeLeon, who is a leader in the in the party, and, and certainly he's led in some progressive efforts, very important ones in the Senate in recent years, but it's certainly part of what you would in some ways called the establishment in the state, has, has sort of said green light to progressive challenges from the left, you know, against sitting senator who is, you know, she's not like been indicted for something or she hasn't, you know, you know she, he just disagrees with her politics, uh, or at least that's a stated reason for his, uh, for his running. So uh, let me just say I'm, wa I'm watching with interest and we'll, we'll, we'll make a decision. I think I owe people a public decision, but I haven't done um, I just haven't done that yet. I've been giving it some consideration. Hartson very recently entered the race. I, I sort of like need to study her a little more. I'd say I know the least about her. And, but was very, for example, I know Rokana very quickly endorsed her, a, a congressman who I think is a very important congressman in California and a thought leader for progressives in the state. So I, I think we have to look at all the, these, all of these folks. Now, in fact, is it going to be tough to beat Diane Feinstein? It will. She's going to have an enormous amount of money. And, you know, and, and that doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. But you have to, you know, it all has to be fit into a big picture too. Um, I wanted to respond to something from your question before, if I have a second, which was about socialism and that and the word socialist, because um, you know it is a word that is it means a lot of different things to different people, 
But I, I do often want to bring it up in the context of the single-payer discussion. Is that okay if we, like, hit this for a second? I think you should bring it up because I think there's been a lot of distortion surrounding what socialism is for a lot of Americans for a long time. And I think we need to have that discussion in public because it's not this horrible boogeyman that a lot of Americans have been told it is. You know, so, yeah, let's definitely talk about it. No, but, well, and, and, um, you know, and we've certainly now seen in the last 20, in a set of 2016 races, a set of candidates who identified as democratic socialists in elections all over the country. Nobody in a, you know, kind of a giant earth shattering way, but you've, there's, there, it's clear that the, the valences around that word or the, that the acceptability is shifting. Let me say this. I think that, that, you know, and right now I've been contemplating writing a piece on um, what does the word progressive mean? What does Bernie crap mean? What does uh, what does socialist mean? And that you know, and, and because these are words that have sort of been sort of flying around, and sometimes it's good to get clear on something. But I think it's very actually important thing to discuss vis-a-vis Medicare for all. So, because one understanding of the word socialized medicine is that it implies that not only is the delivery system um, publicly, or sorry, not only is the insurance system publicly organized, but that the delivery system is too. In other words, um, you know, I was a doctor in the Navy. The, the Navy is, it's a socialized medicine system. The doctor works for the government, the building's owned by the government, the pharmacy's owned by the government. Every, you know, everything about it is, is, you know, from soup to nuts is paid for by the government. But that's not what SB 562 or the Medicare program are. They are socialization of the insurance program and leave in place a mixed model of private sector and public sector, including not-for-profit and even for-profit private sector delivery systems. And, and this is really important because some people like to go to Kaiser. Fine. Some people like to go to their, you know, individual doctor's, uh, you know, private practice. Fine. And some people will be delighted to continue to go to, you know, either the VA um, or, to county facilities where they have long-standing relationships in their communities. And so I just want to be clear that SB 562 in Medicare and really presumably Medicare for All wouldn't fit what I guess people would call socialized medicine where the entire operation becomes operated by the government, both the insurance side and the delivery side. Does that, is that, you know, no, that is a huge – I'm glad you're saying this because I, in fact, mentioned this in my opening remarks on the show. I don't know why it shifted to that belief that having uh, a single-payer system where it's about the payments and who's managing it shifted into the government decides who lives and dies or who decides what medical things happen. No, that remains between the patient and the doctor. But this is a tactic that, a tactic that the health insurance industry has used to its advantage. I mean, we saw it also with these arguments that were made, um, the quote-unquote death squads, that if we had any sort of government system, death that, panels, that would be yeah. de- right, death panels, exactly, which was right. just completely ridiculous, especially yeah. given the fact if you look at a lot of the way the health insurance industry is run, they actually do have a form of that. I'm going to call them actuaries that are doing mathematical modeling based on whether a procedure is um, economically viable and profitable, that person's deciding right there whether your claim is going to get paid. And it seems to me that you're more likely to have your claim denied by a, a private health insurance company than you are to have care, actual care denied under a Medi-Cal for all program. Is that pretty much how you perceive the situation as well? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I think any doctor who works in our current system would say that they're like, their biggest problems sort of getting things approved or getting paid come from the private sector where everything is a battle to, uh, related to the bottom line um, as opposed to from the, from the public sector. Like Medicare 
not a flawless system, but they, folks get paid. <laughs> and, and there's a fairly clear understanding of sort of what's covered and, and you sort of like know that it's generally know what will be covered and what won't and, and, and you just do your job. So uh, there's another way that I like to say this. There's a couple of ways of looking at this, I think, and to, because, because some people will retreat into a very sort of facile sort of like, is this socialism or I'm for the free market, I'm not, I'm against socialism or vice versa. The labels sometimes obfuscate some of this stuff. So, um, you know, I, I sometimes bring up the example fire departments or fire departments. Is we basically have like single payer for fire departments everywhere, right? And so there, there even was a point in history where there was sort of like private sector, you could get kind of private sector fire protection insurance tied to a program and sort of like ADT security, right? So stuff like that where you would call. But it turns out that it's like if your neighbor's house is burning down, it, 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 and you and he or she doesn't have <laughs> that in private insurance. Well, you're in trouble anyhow. So long ago, we just figured out, and nobody seems to have a big ideological problem. Fire, it's like okay to have a single payer for fire. You know, it's mostly done at the municipal level or whatever. But it, that that multiple payers or multiple fire protection programs just like don't work. And that is the kind of insurance, right? Your house doesn't burn down every year. You're, you're, you're sort of paying taxes to... I, I think that's so, a great example. I think it's the yeah, perfect, and, perfect and, example. And, and so another way of saying this, too, what we were talking about, and I think it's really important, which is that almost everybody in America believes, left or right, thinks that government sometimes tyrannizes people, right? I mean, and, you know, almost everybody. What I think people talk about a little less is that concentrated economic interests also tyrannize people. It, like they they do all the time, and so you know, for example, I mean, one of the things that just shocked me, absolutely shocked me, is that President Trump just appointed to be the new Secretary of Health and Human Services a man named Alex Azar, who was running Eli Lilly when they were involved in collusion with other companies to raise the price of insulin. It's sort of like a vital medication that makes all the difference in the well-being and survival of people with diabetes, right? And so, and in other words, if you, like, we have, acting like the market always works or that the market even works as a market, you know, for certain things is just... It just doesn't, it, you know, I think one of the jobs of government is to figure out sort of like, where does the market do pretty well? Like, for example, I think the market in tacos does just fine. You know, I, I'm just fine with, you know, private sector taco trucks. I whatever. like that market. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. That's where I go. I mean, I don't tend to go to government cafeterias for lunch by choice. I tend to go to the taco truck. But if... You know, I just think other markets, just uh, other or, or, or other sort of economic activities, either because of the actions of the government or because of the inherent nature of the activity, just don't work. So I think like fire protection is a really good example of where it just doesn't work. Now the drug markets, I think there's some uh, the pharmaceutical markets. I think there's some real problems, which is because of kind of crony capitalism and unwillingness of the government to, for example, enforce antitrust law um, that, that, you know, and, and so there's problems there. That has led to, you know, pharmaceutical industry, both patented side and generic side, that tyrannizes people. But those are private companies, right? And so I, I just think that sometimes people, maybe people on the right are more, attuned to tyranny coming from the government and a little less attuned to tyranny coming from the private sector. And, and both need vigilance, right? I mean, anytime you're sort of concentrated power, it, it sometimes screws people. And, Agreed. And so, right, but, but there's sort of a, an identification of one as being a source of all the time the problem and this other Correct. one is never the problem. And I just think that's wrong. 
I agree. I have, I'm fond of saying uh, that it's not as simple as the government, yay, private enterprise, boo, or private enterprise, yay, government, boo. There's a, there's a, in, a, in a well-formed society, there is a place for both, and we need to do a better job of balancing those things. We recently also had in California uh, Prop 61 that was an attempt that was endorsed by Bernie Sanders. It was an attempt to sort yeah. of rein in this economical tyranny that you're talking about that's, that's stemming from our, our pharmaceutical uh, industry. And I was very disappointed that it didn't pass. And I look at the reasons why, and I'm a little bit baffled because, I, I, once again, we saw uh, big money coming into the race lots and lots of money coming into the race on the no side. And you also saw some strange supporters on the no side. Like, I was very disappointed to see the arguments being made about the Veterans Administration. You know, the reason they get a lower cost on drugs is because they are able to negotiate one. Yeah. Whereas, you know, so obviously that's an advantage. Um, do you have any specific thoughts on how that played out? It completely illustrates how, like, what's wrong right now with American governance as far as money goes. In other words, we have status quos that don't serve people. Those status quos make money and primarily money for capital as opposed to labor. And then we have campaign finance laws that allow capital, if you will, to perpetuate the laws that keep this whole structure in place. <laughs> and so, in other words, you saw that in this, which is this enormous expenditure from the pharmaceutical industry to defeat this bill because it was bad for them. You know, I mean, we can get back into the conversation about corporate money and quid pro quo or the union money and quid pro quo, but I do think that's part of the reason why we're in this position. And we certainly can't continue in the same vein that we are in now. People are are literally dying for lack of health care or they're going no bankrupt. No question. And then, if pe- and then if people who are Democrats don't act... Then, right. Well, that's what, that's what elections are for. I agree. That, that, that's what elections are for.